As one of America's largest financial services companies, Nationwide makes simplicity a priority so financial professionals can help their clients achieve their retirement goals. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keane, along with Jonathan Farrow and Lisa Abramowitz. Join us each day for insight from the best in economics, geopolitics, finance, and investment. Subscribe to Bloomberg Surveillance On Demand on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere you get your podcasts. And always on Bloomberg.com, the Bloomberg Terminal, and the Bloomberg Business App. Jan Hatzius and a team over at Goldman still calling for a pause at the next meeting and saying... This, here's the latest from them. The CPI report is supportive of our call for a pause at the June FOMC meeting. The shelter step down, Tom, looks increasingly durable. Inflation yeah. breadth softens somewhat further and the strength in used car prices is likely temporary. Just in the last 48 hours, this has changed because of the misguess on housing in the United Kingdom. Completely different story, but it shows you how humility is in order here. What's the key point you have on a humility at the moment, Dr. Hatzius? You look at the things you've made right, the things you've made wrong into the first five months of 2023. What's the humility you're writing about this weekend on inflation? I would say mostly things have evolved the way we thought, at least in the labor market. For me, the labor market's really key, and the rebalancing that we're mm-hmm. seeing there, I think it's very encouraging, with job openings coming down and the unemployment rate still staying very low. So it's a very benign form of rebalancing. In terms of the tactics of Fed policy, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I would have thought a pause in, in March would have, would have made sense, and we thought that was, uh, that was the likely outcome. Um, but I think... You know, now a lot of humility is in order as we go into the next few mm-hmm. months. There's obviously a lot of event risk, but I would say we're, we're reasonably well set up in terms of the disinflation process that's underway. The power game that's out there that you have to battle every day is on the x-axis. And to me, the markets are in short term. They're looking for drama to Labor Day, drama to October. Does Goldman Sachs extend out the x-axis the healing out of the pandemic is the things we're talking about for October 23, really the things we're going to be talking about in June of 2024? Well, I think by June of 2024, I would have, you know, our baseline has the rebalancing in the in the labor market completed at that point. Mm-hmm. And inflation, you know, down from, uh, you know, right now we're four and a half uh, by the you know, next year, I think we'll be below 3%. So I do think we're going to be in a very different place. Mm-hmm. In terms of the funds rate, though, I would expect that we'll still be, you know, close to here, or in fact, where we are right now. I mean, our baseline forecast is that the funds rate stays at five to five and a quarter for the next year or so. I'm you know, risks to that, certainly on the downside. I think it's much more likely that you go from five to three, then that you go from five to seven. Okay. But I do think the market 
is overly aggressive in building in rate cuts. Let's explore that a little bit further. This was a question I got from a Bloomberg subscriber just moments ago as soon as they knew that you were appearing. They said if stocks rally big over the summer because of the Fed pause, the economy holds up, the debt limit issue is sorted, what does the Fed do in the fall? How would you think about that? Just a piece of scenario analysis. What would that mean for you? Well, I mean, directionally, it would point to you know a higher funds rate. And obviously, the market is below the current level in terms of forward pricing. So, you know, holding would already be, uh, you know, would, would already have some impact in terms of an impulse. But you might need, you know, additional hikes. That's certainly a possibility. I don't think it's, you know, particularly likely uh, if we see ongoing adjustment, if we see adjustment in inflation and the labor market, then there's also going to be a little bit more tolerance for easier financial conditions and stronger growth. But there's a limit to it. If forward pricing adjusts upwards towards the Federal Reserve, would you consider that a tightening of policy somewhat? Is that how you'd think about it? It depends on what, what it's driven by. It's, if it's driven by a stronger economy, then no. If it's driven by you know, Fed messaging that they're less willing to cut uh, you know, relative to the, to the market's expectation, then I would view it as a tightening. People are waiting for something big to happen because they're impatient and they're looking for a trading opportunity. And I'm curious, what is the next shoe to drop? Is it housing prices crashing? Uh, well, housing, I think, you know, we had declines in house prices in the second half of last year. We actually have seen some stabilization in 2023 so far. So I wouldn't really expect, barring another major shock, for example, the, the sort of thing that John was talking about, significant further upward pressure on the funds rate, I wouldn't really expect a uh, you know, sharp, uh, sharp drop in, in, in house prices from here. Um, you know, there's still some, I think, erosion happening. Some of that is also because the official indices lag behind reality somewhat. But I, I, I wouldn't expect that to be a big shock. Was the banking crisis basically resolved and now it's just sort of the slow bleed of the reality of higher yields? Or is there something uh, percolating there that you're keeping an eye on as also a, a potential catalyst, especially if what John said does come to pass where people price out some of those rate cuts? I mean, our view is that the banking turmoil is going to dra be a drag on growth. We've said about, you know, 40 basis points or so, you know, half a percentage point or a little less. How do you come up with that, Jan? Can I ask? There, How do you and the team come up with that 40, 50 basis the, points number? Well, the primary approach was to basically look at past changes in uh, lending conditions in the Fed's senior loan officer survey, making assumptions about where that goes, and then feeding that into our model, which also includes financial conditions, and then getting sort of the extra effect over and above what you'd normally effect, expect in a tightening financial conditions environment. That's how we came up with it. I would say that so far, what we've seen in these surveys has been less pronounced. There's been less of a tightening that we expected than we expected. And now the question is, is it just delayed or are we just seeing a smaller impact? I think that's a little bit too early to tell, also because obviously some of these banking issues are not yet resolved. There's still pressure in the market. Um, so the last chapter probably hasn't been written yet. But right now, we're still um, estimating that 40 basis point. Number. What's more pernicious for this economy? For it to be a slow burn, a slow tick, tick, tick of reduced lending, of tightening uh, credit standards, or a sudden shock? 
Well, a sudden shock is more pernicious because a slow burn, you know, there's, there, there are a lot of other factors in the economy that can offset the slow burn. Policy can react to it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, clearly something that happens very suddenly in large size is much more difficult to manage if you're an economic policymaker. So I'll go, I'll go with, a, with a quick shock here. Long ago and far away. There was a guy named O'Neill and Dudley. They were at Goldman Sachs with Ed McKelvey. And there's this young whippersnapper out of Wisconsin-Madison in Germany who made his name on mortgage equity withdrawal. John Farrell brought up in the last hour the new housing dilemma. We have an America of 2.6% mortgages locked in, and they're never, ever going to sell. What does your team say about the housing economy of America? This is where you got your fame, Jan. What does your team say now about all those people out there locked into mortgages of their dreams? So first of all, I would say, you know, the housing bubble was really central in the pre-08 economy, obviously. It hasn't been central in mm-hmm. the recent economy. It's been important. There has been a, you know, a big boom and somewhat of a bust. And you know, mortgage equity withdrawal did pick up in 2021 to levels that were appreciable, I would say. Not mm-hmm. dramatic, but appreciable. Mm-hmm. And mortgage equity withdrawal coming down since the peak of that cycle has been a drag on growth. Um, you know, I'd say specifically on the you know, lock-in from 7% 30-year mortgage rates yeah. uh, versus maybe 3% or 4% that people took out the mortgage rates at, I do think that is part of the sort of slow burn that, that, that Lisa talked about. I mean, I do think it probably at the margin reduces mobility somewhat. The research on those issues has been somewhat mixed, so that's why I'm putting this in somewhat cautious, uh, cautious terms. But I, I do think it probably is at the margin uh, more negative for, for mobility, you know, until more time has passed. Are you avoiding debt ceiling conversations at the moment with clients? Do they want to talk about it? I talk about what uh, what clients want to talk about, of course. Oh, is that really? top of mind? That's the, um, that's the mind? Solomon method of economics. Is it top of mind? Yeah. It's top of mind for uh, for a lot of people and, you know, undoubtedly over the next few few weeks until, you know, whatever the X date is, it will remain top of mind. It probably will go you know, right up to the to the wire, just looking at the political dynamics. And it's still, you know, unclear how exactly it's going to be resolved. Our baseline uh, is that, you know, there's going to be a resolution very close to the uh, to the ex state. Uh, and that, you know, ultimately, you do get some spending cuts or some spending caps. But we don't expect anything as large as what we had in the 2011 situation. We'll have to see what that means for the outlook as well. Jan Hatsius at Goldman. Jan, thank you. Nobody ever says, make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs to ways to cover rising health care costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. 
The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. What we know is if you go back to the Orlando Sentinel from a few years ago, you can talk about a sterling ballerina and a ballerina career that was legit in what the parents said to Cameron Dawson is have a fallback. Her fallback has been sterling strategy for Bank of America, among others. She's at New Edge Wealth right now, their chief investment officer. Tell me about the ballet we're in right now. You know, ballet, that's a tough <laughs> business. Your body falls apart. Is our economy, is our financial system falling apart right now? Well, the interesting thing about ballets is that they always either end in a wedding or a death. <laughs> And so I think that's what we're looking at with this cycle, which is that are we going to have a recession or not? And that's why this market has been flat, because we're in this world where we know the risk of recession is high, but we're not seeing the whites of the eyes of it in hard data. And that's why we continue to have this sideways chop. Do you operate with the assumption that we will get one this year? This year, I think, is the operative word. It could lean more into 2024. I think the interesting thing is just at the precise moment when economists and the bond market are expecting a recession to hit, those cuts to hit, is when the equity market has earnings starting to reaccelerate and rebound. And that's a really big schism for this market. Have you got this tradable window then? What do you do with it between the last Fed hike, if indeed it was the mm -hmm. meeting before, and the recession? that you start to see in some of the data, payrolls, et cetera. What do you do in that window? You probably trade on technicals, things like momentum, and you trade on positioning and sentiment. Those kinds of things can drive the market in the short term, and it's really in the medium term where the fundamentals start to matter. So when we look at that 4,200 level, there is this risk that we move higher. And I say risk because people aren't positioned for it. That is the pain trade that we don't get above 42. And it may not be justified by the fundamentals in the medium term, but the technicals, the sentiment positioning could get us above that and really make it a very big pain trade. What happens, though, if we don't get a catalytic event? Mm -hmm. If it's just sort of, you know, little data points that you can justify with the narrative that you desire. And this is what we've been getting for a lot of this year. And we're going to continue getting for a number of months based on what a lot of people are saying. Do markets just stay in this range? It reminds you of 2006, 2007, because the writing was on the wall that things were certainly starting to weaken, yet markets shrugged them off because you didn't see the whites of the eyes of the weakness. The Fed had paused, and it wasn't until 2008 that we started to see unemployment tick up, and really the Fed start to react to that. So there's a long precedent for these cycles simply taking a long time. It's like watching paint dry, which is why we have to think of this in two time frames: the short term being driven by those momentum and indicators and medium term by the actual fundamentals. The boiling of the frog until suddenly it, there is no frog that is alive and hopping. There's a question about, you know, this is not 2008 and people are talking about that based in the global banks that have plenty of capital. But is this leading to some sort of fissure, some sort of seizure that is going to lead to massive valuation drops or is it not? Or is it going to be something that's more akin to the recessions of yore? Well, I think it starts from your point, Jonathan, all the time about how we shouldn't always just index to 2008 
because just indexing to the extreme is not helpful. The reality here is that we're likely going to see some slowing in loan growth, and that typically coincides with slowing in economic activity. It should be expected that banks, small banks who've been annualizing loan growth at 8% for the last cycle, will see that slow in response to that. That will have real economic impact, and at this point, it's not being priced in. I'm with you. I agree with you, obviously, because you agree with me, and you can come back anytime to talk about it. People will want to benchmark to something, though. Mm -hmm. What should you benchmark to? What is the parallel right now for you? I think it's somewhere in between the 2018 experience where we didn't have a recession and the Fed was was able to ease and there was no inflation in that extreme of 2008. Remember 2016, we got very, very close to a recession. We, we flew very close to the sun and we were able to avoid it in that scenario. I think that's probably a good parallel for us to say, where could the earnings risk be? We think that we have some recession. It just won't be as deep as 08. One of the great uh, realities of Florida right now, you're Florida is everybody's been there for three cups of coffee and Mm -hmm. think they're experts. You own the high ground on Florida. Is the economy boom there legit? And it is a symbol of an optimism in America that we underestimate. I've always considered Florida beta on the economy because there is so much discretionary spending in Florida and it tends to have more pronounced boom bust cycles than most other states. And always when you're in a boom, there's always this notion that this this time is different. It's never going to end. But I'm hearing people leave places like Miami because they're getting priced out. They can't afford it. That may be the first indicators that some of this high beta flying parts of the economy are finally starting to feel the pinch of price pressure. I mean, I mentioned the at the beginning, and I look at the damage out there, and my whole thing is corporations will adapt and adjust given cards dealt. That's what I see right now for a part of the Standard & Poor's 500, not all. How's that trend going to play out this year? Well, certainly that's what we saw in the first quarter. That's how earnings came in better than expected. We saw corporations adapt and adjust and defend on the margin line. The thing that will be interesting to watch is that if inflation really does roll over and it falls, that means Mm -hmm. revenue growth is going to fall. Nominal GDP comes in, revenue comes in. And that usually leads to margin pressure, regardless of what you do on the cost side, because you lose the incremental margin dynamic. John? Honeywell with a banner across the Bloomberg years ago, all of a sudden they were doing 8% organic revenue growth. (laughs) No one had ever framed that. And when they come back to 6%, not to pick on Honeywell, that's going to be the game changer. This was great. Cameron, thank you. you. Cameron Dawson of New Edge Wealth. (laughs) Peter Chair with us around the table, the head of macro strategy at Academy Securities. Pete, good morning. Let's start with this one. Who's more complacent right now, this market or politicians in Washington? I think the politicians in Washington, because this market, I think, is trying to figure out, do we get some sort of soft landing? Does this work out? Do we get through a bunch of these problems or not? And I think that's where we're on this potential for a large gap either direction. I think the people in D.C. have kind of lost the focus. There's plenty of other things we should be focusing on other than the debt ceiling. And that's just a time sink at this point. We've got copper rolling over. I look carefully at the Bloomberg Commodity Index. It's good mathematics, and it's not a pretty chart. You have your firm has a wonderful Pacific Rim study ongoing. What do you see there? Is it real slowdown? 
Yeah, I think China is having some troubles, but I think even beyond that, I really sticking to this theme that we're going from made in China to made by China. We're across the globe. China is now trying to compete with our products, compete with our companies more than they ever did. It's something we're hearing from companies. We're running into people who are losing contracts right. denominated in uh, the Chinese currency. I think that's a long going play. China's still struggling, but it's going to be at our expense as well. With the military exposure of your firm, can you invest in Taiwan even with the United States committing to three and indeed four military bases in the Philippines? Is Taiwan uninvestable? Yeah, so I think our firm has pretty strong view that China is not going to invade Taiwan anymore anytime soon. The defenses of Taiwan are very strong. China's learned a bunch of lessons from Russia. Having said that, there is this erosion of confidence and how yeah. we're going to be able to deal with Taiwan over time. So I think you've got to be careful there. Right now, a lot of people are cautious. We are seeing this sort of volatility come down, people getting a sense that they're just waiting for Godot, waiting for some catalyst, waiting for a sense of which direction we're going to pivot in. What are you looking for to really represent that catalyst? So I think people have been patient. They latched onto the AI story. So that's been what all the bulls have gravitated to. And it's an interesting story. There's definitely some run room there. For me, the catalyst is what happens with the banking? Do we really see this slowdown? And you know, when we look at that, um, the SLU's report, which we never really pay that much attention to. <laughs> we do now. now. We do now, apparently. <laughs> but I think really the important thing there was it's a demand side issue, right? There's lack of demand for loans. It's not just that the banks don't have deposits. So I think we're seeing the economy slow down. Jobs data, a lot of it's still good. You're seeing little bits and pieces like we're starting to see a tick up in unemployment um, claims. How good is that when every headline really is about layoffs? So I think there's a slow bleed. It's slowly playing into the economy. And I'm looking for either confirmation for that or that somehow we've avoided that problem. Okay. So what is that problem, right? Because things are slowing down and this is by design. And this is sort of the difficulty where people are saying, that's happening. And it's a good thing. Yes, we're seeing a rise in unemployment claims. This is exactly what the Fed wanted. Yes, we're seeing deceleration. Okay, great. And guess what? Companies are actually more profitable because margins are increasing. They're passing along those prices. When is it a negative? I think it's already a negative. I think one of the things is we're addressing something that was really a supply chain shock. And we're trying to use monetary policy to address the supply chain shock. So that was a problem. So we're doing the wrong things. And I think we're forgetting about all these lags, right? It takes months and months from the person who gets let go by the time they get their severance package and all these things to hit the economy. I think the rate hikes from last November haven't even really hit the economy, right? People rolling over their car loans. Everyone I talk to who's looking at releasing a car after their three years, they're shocked by the price. They didn't have to deal with that a year ago if their lease wasn't coming due. So I, I think that lag is something yeah. we've all forgotten about in this real-time economy. One of the quiet charts of the week were bankruptcies in the United States. I was thunderstruck how they're elevated here. It's a process. I think we're all waiting for this event. Boom. It's a process. And you can put the pieces together. The other issue that I think a lot of people have got right now, Pete, is that we had excessive monetary easing for so long, for an extended period of time, way beyond the time that we needed it. And then the Federal Reserve had to play catch up, not front loading. I hate that language. It wasn't front loading, it was back loading. They were late. And we're trying to work out what the price is we've got to pay for that as market participants. Is it just a 30% move on the NASDAQ? last year, or is there more to come? I think there's going to be more to come, and I completely agree. They were very late, which is ironic. Even as they were discussing rate hikes, they were still doing large-scale asset purchases QA. into January 2022. So they missed a lot on that. 
And when I look at the banking crisis or whatever you want to call it, to me, it's very simple. Basically, during COVID, banks went from 13 trillion to 18 trillion. So in two years, they took in $5 trillion of assets, which is much more than the 500 billion they normally take in at the exact worst time to find good investments. So it would not be surprising to find that some percentage of the banks were very conservative and dealt with it well, and some maybe got a little bit aggressive. And I think that's what's playing out right now. This no longer has anything to do with uninsured deposits. It's about what did banks do with the money when they took it in? And what are they going to pay people to keep the deposits? Because I don't think anyone's really worried about their deposits defaulting. It's now, am I getting a fair rate on that? And what does this bank own on the back of that? Well, well said, Pete. We could be facing, what, years of some of these banks just being quite unprofitable for a long time. Yeah, I think that's right. I think it's going to be a unwind period. And my big concern, it's a tail risk. I don't think it happens. But the tail risk is as one comes through and their balance sheet becomes available for sale, it drags prices down, bringing another one into that leg. So that domino effect. So I think that's what we've got to be working on. The Fed's got to be very careful about hiking rates. They've got to be very careful about causing pressure on bond prices because that will you know, basically create that domino effect. We'll be talking about this for years. Yes, mortgages sold at 2%. We'll be talking about this for well, decades. It, well, People aren't going to sell their houses. Well, we know is, this. You know, the running joke's been, you know, for a lot of people, certainly last year, your best asset was your mortgage. So <laughs> it's like crazy to think about that Who's going to sell their house? Who on earth is going to sell their house unless they're forced to move for a job or right. something out of their control happens? Who is voluntarily going to sell their house with a 30-year mortgage on it with a rate of 2 to 3%? And so that's been one of the ironies of this whole thing, right? The home builders are doing well because they can build a new house that someone has to move in because there is the supply shortage because of this weird phenomenon about mortgages. Well, and then there's this question about financial engineering where people are going to basically just pass along those mortgages. I don't know. Taking a step back, I just wonder how much this is normal, right, that you get a washout in banks and how much is different? How much is this something that is a, a unique distortion? I have no idea what normal is anymore. What's normal? We don't we've, know what normal we've, is. We've had a distortion for like the last... 10, 15 years. This was a That's calculus exercise. The first and second derivative of the rate change, and Peter was way out front on this, was truly historic. If you get yields coming back in in a Steve Major way, in an Ed Hyman way, in a David Rosenberg way, does this self-adjust price up, yield down? No one's looking for that. No one's looking. You talk 2 to 3% mortgages. What if you get back to a 3.6% mortgage? And I would just add the one thing, right? We never experienced these large-scale asset purchases or QE until... 2008. Uh, yeah, yeah, I don't think we up. have any idea how those really affect asset prices or not. So I think people like to try oh. and convert, oh, how much QE is or QT is a basis point. I don't think we have any idea. And I think QE and QT go much more directly to asset prices. Right. And you keep looking at the Fed balance sheet and the stock market. Steve Rusciuto's heated about this at Mizuno. Steve's he great. says, just stop it now. You know what normal is? It's when you enter the industry on Wall Street. Whatever date that was. Exactly. That's, that's true. Very true. That's what you believe. Can or I when you first got your mortgage. I was speaking to someone at the airport the other day. <laughs> totally. and John, Let me tell you about the 80s. <laughs> just, you know, just like um, what I had to yeah. pay in my It's always yeah. the same. Can I say thank you? Sure, of course. I had no idea about snakes and ladders. Oh, I had you? no idea. Oh, there you go. No yeah. idea. It makes no sense. It's history. It goes back to the India, the Raj, mm -hmm. all that. Did they slide down snakes back then? No, but they're scary, and that's why they changed it to shoots in America in 1943. Too, too scary for the kids. 1943. They make them soft here. Every you, that's you know, what's Pharaoh, Pharaoh that's shows what's up. I learn something <laughs> every single Friday. They're going, they're going soft. I'll send the Pharaoh hey, you know boys what? over to you the Pharaoh house. Two days this week. You should come this in. This is what Governor Youngkin was talking about. <laughs> oh my gosh! This is what he was talking about. <laughs> shoots and ladders. Nate, you know what's happening in education these days? Should shoots we... and ladders. <laughs> <laughs> Stick some snakes on them. That's a conversation for another time. Peter Chair of Academy Securities. Thank you, sir.
Nobody ever says, make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs to ways to cover rising health care costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Kelsey Barrow with us right now, fixed income portfolio manager, J.P. Morgan Asset Management, briefing Mr. Diamond yesterday as he spoke to Francine uh, Lacroix. I, I look at the bond market and what I would say in equities, foreign exchange and commodities, commodities very weak, bonds always send a message. What's the message being sent by fixed income right now? Well, I think the message being sent by fixed income is there is slower growth and slower inflation ahead. And, you know, we continue to look at the yield curve and look at the signal that the yield curve is giving, which is a very inverted yield curve. You have the short rate at 5% right. now and you have the 10 year at 3.4%. And it's saying that, you know, things are going to slow down. So historically, what happens, our favorite yield curve is the three month bill rate versus the 18 month forward bill rate. Now, that is about 200 basis points inverted at this point. It's the most inverted back to the 90s. Historically, when that starts to get inverted, it's about 12 months to recession. Now, that inverted November of 2022, that puts you in about Q4 uh, for recession. Mm. For you recession. and the team have got first rate cut when? September? We do. September. Yes. Do you have yep. any idea of what they come back to? Or is it still too early to, to make those kind of calls? We don't necessarily think they're going back to the zero lower bound, but we all we are uh, positioned long duration, which means that we, we have to feel that the Fed is going to be more aggressive than what's already priced into the market. So, you know, you've probably heard the uh, expression that, you know, the Fed takes the stairs up and then the elevator down. I like of thinking about, about it like shoots and ladders, if you've ever played that children's game. Um, essentially, you know, what we expect is that when the Fed does cut, they are going to be cutting fairly aggressively. Mm -hmm. And it's not because of the inflation story. We actually already see the inflation trends, the disinflationary trends, fairly well entrenched. We expect to see them over the course of the year. What's going to have to happen for them to actually cut rates is going to be to start to see cracks in the labor market. So you mentioned continuing claims. Continuing claims really, you know, I think is, is showing an important trend. So if you look at continuing claims year over year, it's up 25%. That's never happened outside a recession. That's going, going back all the way to the 1960s. But is that enough for cracks? I mean, honestly, this is really the question. A lot of people are saying, okay, this is what the Fed's been looking for. Maybe it's a little bit above. It still is pretty low relative to history. It's coming off an incredibly historically low base. How much is this enough of a crack, or does it have to be an acceleration in the regional banking crisis? Does it have to be commercial real estate? Does it have to be private equity? 
Yeah. So what we're trying to do right now is we're trying to build a ledger. And, and there's things on both sides of the ledger. There are things that are saying the expansion can continue. And I think, you know, the biggest thing there, you know, is some of the data still in the labor market. We're still growing jobs around 200,000. That's well above the break-even rate. And as a result, the unemployment rate is still falling. But the number of things on the other side of the ledger that are suggesting that we should be slowing is just building and building and building now. And it's really allowing us to, you know, increase our confidence that as bond managers, what we want to be doing is staying long duration, adding curve steepeners to portfolios on opportunities, you know, where the curve may tactically uh, flatten and staying very up in quality in terms of our credit credit quality bias. This is something that we saw with the flood inflows over the past week. Global bond funds had their seventh straight week of inflows, the focus really being on developed market debt. Equity flows were interesting and high yield I put in there. There were outflows with, of the U.S., there were inflows for the rest of the world, particularly China. Do you agree with this assessment? The U.S. is the weak spot, but globally, risk is a little bit more appealing. Well, I do think that the stories are not the same, you know, particularly on the central bank side, on the inflation side. You have Europe. Inflation is really not showing any improvements. UK not showing any improvements in terms of inflation. Um, you know, they are a little bit behind in terms of the monetary policy cycle. But I'd actually point to something more global, which is the commodity market. We were looking at the copper gold ratio yesterday. That's actually back down to where it was two years ago. So, you know, I think that the commodity market is is telling you that that there may be a little bit more stress globally in terms of demand. Those investors are saying, I'm not sure there's as much demand for all of this uh, industrial product. That tells you more about lower growth. Is that the call there? Is that yes. what you're seeing? Yes. So lower and yields at the long end, rate cuts to be priced in at the front end. Where does the debt ceiling fit into all of that? When you start talking about curves and mention T-bills, yeah. I'm like, how much of that at the front end of the curve is just driven by this mess right now in Washington? So definitely there is distortions in the T-bill market as a result of the debt ceiling. I mean, you have uh, five trillion, six trillion nearly in, in assets and money market funds, and they're all being moved around to try to adjust for this potential stress, this X state uh, that uh, Chair Yellen is our... Uh, Treasury Secretary Yellen is uh, putting on June 1st. You know, in our mind, ultimately, this is just another stressor at a point where, you know, the system is fairly fragile. And what we're thinking about is kind of these unintended consequences. And there's a lot of operational risk that people don't understand that's going on in the background. The Treasury market is the backbone of the financial system. It, you know, it's not just that, you know, we talk about is, it, is the yields going up, is the yields going down? It's used as collateral. You know, it's used as a safe haven across the world. And so if you have a bill that uh, is going to mature during the X date and we do run through that X date, there's a lot of questions about how things are going to work. And and, and you mentioned, Jamie, um, you know, here at Bloomberg yesterday, Mr. he's Diamond. talking about the Mr. war rooms. You know, that's what everyone is is looking at now well, is setting up inside, those war rooms. Take us inside your war room. Can you describe what that day might look like? I won't ask you for the probability that we're going to see that day. That would be unfair. But describe what you think that day might look like. I own an at-risk maturity, whatever that one might be. That day comes, we go through it. 
what happens? What does that look like? Well, I do think that the money market funds are preparing for this. And, and that's why you're already seeing the distortions in the market. So, you know, the investors that are are needing to, to adjust are already making those adjustments now. But I do think, of course, the broader sentiment in the market, if we were to pass the X date and, and not have the money that we needed to continue to pay bills, would be a fairly uh, a stressful situation for the broader markets. Uh, I think credit spreads would be widening. I think equity markets would be falling. The Treasury's rallying. And I think Treasuries will be rallying, similar to the experience well, we had in 2011. That's where I want to go. The U.S. aggregate total return index needs to go up 12 percent in price to get back to where it was before all this uh, storm and thunder. Great. How long is it going to take for people to get price up, yield down, so they recover from the bond debacle of the last two years? Well, the good news is they're already getting some of that. They're right? getting some yeah, of it. I'll give they, you that. But yeah. come on. Is yeah. it quarters or are you and Bob looking out years to see a price recovery in bonds? Well, we've looked at how bonds perform once the Fed has paused and bonds handily outperform cash once the Fed has paused. So we are looking at a situation where, you know, this is the time to get invested. This is the time to lock in the yields, get them now and benefit from the capital appreciation. Once the Fed starts hiking, we expect that in Q4. So by duration on what we believe is the last hike seems to be the call, right? That's it. Kelsey, wonderful to get your view on things. Kelsey Barrow there of JP Morgan Asset Management. To so many of uh, Americans, Japan is Tokyo. There is a whole nother Japan, and part of it is on the West Coast overlooking the sea to Korea and Russia. That's where our Anne-Marie Horton is. She is our Bloomberg G7 finance minister's correspondent after her most interesting interview with the Secretary of Treasury. Anne-Marie Horton, the Secretary, is 76 years old. She has bulletproof economic academics as well. And what I really heard today is she's going to stay the course and serve out her term. Is that true? Yes, that is true. She said this a number of times. She confirmed that with me today. I asked her a little bit of a tongue-in-cheek question at the very end if she'd consider another four years if President Biden were to win, win because obviously he has relaunched uh, his next bid for the White House for 2024. And she laughed, but she says she enjoys doing the work and she will continue to see out this term. Obviously, her work right now, whether it's in Washington or here in Nagata, Japan, is the debt ceiling. On the sidelines, this is what her peers at the G7 are very concerned with. The risks right. to the global economy, they're all emanating from the United States right now. Emory, you know that each White House has a process of debate and dialogue. Where does Secretary Yellen fit into the debate and dialogue of the Biden 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue? Well, when it comes to the debt ceiling, of course, the Treasury Secretary is the individual that is going to continuously update us on the X date. She, she said in my conversation that as we get closer to that June 1st, or as early as June 1st is what she's outlined, that potentially Treasury could run out of the extraordinary measures they've been taking since January, that she will update Congress with a more precise time frame. So her team is going to be obviously communicating all of this first and foremost to the White House. And then, of course, we got a little bit into what happened happens if there were to be a default, if we go over the X date. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen was at the Fed in 2011 when the Fed went through these scenarios of what Treasury was doing, and it was 
under the assumption then, and I've read the transcript, it was under her assumption then, that Treasury would service the debt first. She says that she has not yet spoken about these paths yet with the president. It's going to be politically fraught for this administration if there is no deal and they need to decide to pay bondholders or pay recipients of Social Security. Meanwhile, John was saying that it has to get worse before it gets better. In other words, people have to care more uh, before they can resol resolve anything in Washington, D.C. Over at the G7 finance minister meetings, how much do they care? How much is this a focus versus people looking past this and saying the same thing that people in the markets are, which is, we've seen this movie before, it always gets resolved. There's a lot of concern and angst amongst other financial ministers at the G7. And we heard from the German finance minister. He's saying he hopes that Washington makes a mature decision. They are all also on the edge of their seat waiting to see how this plays out. And there is concern. When you think about the makeup of this Congress, only about 33 percent, NBC recently did analysis of this, 33 percent of lawmakers were here in 2011. They witnessed that downgrade. They witnessed the pain in the market. Not a ton of, a lot of these lawmakers are fresh. And Kevin McCarthy has a very difficult line to walk. I think many people are viewing that the negotiations stopped, to, uh, that the meeting stopped today is postponed to early next week. They do see that as progress because that means on the staff level, they are working through a number of items before they want to sit down with the principals. Um, but next week's going to be incredibly busy. And for the Treasury Secretary, she will be meeting with bank executives. She said recently she's been speaking to business leaders, but she hasn't sp spoken to bank executives since January. And she wants to learn from them what is going on. And potentially she wants to put some pressure on them to start calling uh, other members of Congress because for her, she does not I won't even speak out loud the contingency plans. She says there is no good deal unless Congress lifts the debt ceiling. And Marie, just quickly here, putting those ideas together, the concerns about the banking sector, not just with respect to them getting more excited about the, uh, the uh, de debt default ceiling, but also just with some of the regional banking crisis. How much is the U.S. on a back foot relative to where it has been in the past, these G7 meetings? Well, the U.S. always wants to lead, especially at a G7 like this. They want to lead when it comes to China. The G7 meeting is really the prep work as well for the ministerial meeting that will also be attending with President Biden in Hiroshima. And one thing we know they want to work on is this economic coercion against China. Secretary Yellen has spoke about the work that they're doing potentially on outbound investment. There's supposed to be an executive order. But this administration, the way they confront China, they want to do so in a multilateral approach. It's very difficult to make sure you're corralling all the troops when they're, you come here and they're asking you questions. When is the U.S. going to raise the debt ceiling? How do we know that the treasuries that are the underlying bedrock of the global financial system are going to be paid and secure? It does put them in a very precarious place. AMH, wonderful conversation. Fantastic job this morning. Thanks for joining us. Anne-Marie Hordern there. Out of the G7 meeting over in Japan. Subscribe to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Listen live every weekday starting at 7 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, TuneIn, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can watch us live on Bloomberg Television and always on the Bloomberg Terminal. Thanks for listening. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, 
a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.